Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's me, Cindy House, your host. Hello, it's so nice to have you here. Before we jump into our conversation with No No Boy, a couple things to let you know about. If you want to support the podcast, you can do it in a couple of different ways. You can make a financial contribution at basicfolk.com slash donate or a listener-supported podcast. If you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the entire year, you get access to our bonus content. It's called Backstage. It's not a Patreon, but it's kind of like a Patreon that just all lives on our website. Um, It's very affordable, easy to do, but if you can't swing that now, totally fine. We are so just happy to have you in our community and listening. You can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod or sign up for our monthly newsletter at the website. Again, is basicfolk.com. Okay, let's talk about Julian Saperiti, the brilliant mind behind No No Boy, a recording project that tells the incredible stories of historical triumphs of Asian Americans making their way in the United States. Julian, an Italian-American and Vietnamese-American, has always been drawn to history and music and has used his two passions to elevate these stories. He was truly inspired by his doctoral research at Brown University on Asian-American and Trans-Pacific history, focusing on sound, music, immigration, refugees, and everyday life. Julian began to explore his family's history, pour over archival material and conduct interviews, and found untold musical stories of Asian-American artists like himself. Julian got the no-no boy name from Japanese Americans who were forced to live in internment camps during World War II soon after the Pearl Harbor attack in 1942. They were asked to serve in combat and swear allegiance to the United States. Those who answered no to those two demands on the government's loyal questionnaire became no-no boys, and those who refused were sent to concentration camps. It's also a novel by Asian-American author John Okada, also a song by The Spiders. Our conversation covers his own family history, which he also unabashedly shares his perspective on the concept of, quote, generational trauma. He's not super into it. He expands on the influence of Asian musicians who have learned and perfected the music of the oppressor, like the George Igawa Orchestra, which was a jazz band held at an internment camp led by the Los Angeles musician George Igawa. When he was forced to relocate to the camp, he could only bring what he could carry, which to him meant his instruments. He formed a group in the camp which would play parties at the camp and even outside beyond the confines of the camp's barbed wire. Julian's identity and the 
identity of No-No Boy is solidly rooted in his Asian American experience, but I decided to start our interview with questions about his dad's work in the music industry. Julian's father was a major player in Nashville's country music industry, and he would often take Julian with him to work. This left huge impressions on young Julian, so of course, I had to dig into that first thing. Okay, before we get into our conversation with Julian, let's check out a song from his latest album, 1975. We're going to hear a song about the Georgia Gawa band. It's the best goddamn band in Wyoming, and then we'll get to our conversation with Julian Saperiti from No No Boy on Basic Folk. The flyer red musicians needed So young Yoni grabbed the silver mouthpiece Tracked down a kid who brought a trumpet to Pomona May Yoni have it on a free two-year lease Joy Teraoka Neitakashida Went to the tryout, she was only 16 With some girlfriends to cheer her on Their club was called the Rodells Mom said if you keep up the school Joy, you can't sing Georgie Kawa, Oji Nisei He tore up the coast and even played Japan Before the war, they ripped up the Florida Ballroom and don't sleep on the show Tokians Julian, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Cindy. Happy to be here. Before we get into your mom's side of the family, which is like truly wild, um, I wanted to ask you about your dad. So you grew up in Nashville and your dad worked in the music industry. And from what I understand, he did like international marketing and A&R for country music. And you got to meet country music stars growing up. He worked for people like Emmylou Harris, Keith Urban, Faith Hill, and he is from Boston. And as we were, before we started recording, we were talking about how I'm in Massachusetts right now. Um, And he came up in the Cambridge folk scene, which is cool because I also came up in the Cambridge folk scene. So when I read about that, I was like, oh, interesting. But can you talk about Your dad's interest in music, like folk music in particular, how that came about and how he impacted your passion for folk music. Yeah, I really appreciate you um, digging into that and and starting with that line of questioning because the project I do right now, No No Boy, is so based in immigrant and refugee and Asian American history. And because of the moment we're in, Uh, people, that's like really good clickbait, I think, you know, just like son of a refugee writes folk songs about hidden histories or, or whatever, you know, whatever the subtitle of this podcast will be. Um, (laughs) but you know, that's just half of who I am. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge like the holes of our history, which is sort of my larger project as an academic and a folk singer to tell not in terms of good and bad heroes and villains, prioritizing one thing over another, but just to write things out as it is. So for my own background, um, yeah, we'll get into my mom and that's a huge part of who I am, especially recently in my work. But I'm a Tennessee kid at heart and a first generation and maybe last generation in my family. I don't live in Tennessee anymore, Um, but I grew up there. And my dad's really interesting job, which was radio promoter, basically till I was born. Then he took a job at Warner Brothers as a marketing guy. 
and then was one of the people um, who was responsible for kind of making country music international uh, in the early 90s, um, going to places like Australia and discovering Keith Urban, taking Emmy Lou and other artists to the like Montreux Jazz Festival and stuff like that, um, wow. going all over the world. So it was really a formative upbringing as far as uh, my musical career, having my dad who still performs and records music under the name Reckless Johnny Wales. Um, he sort of retired from Warner's and then just had his own musical career picking up where he left off in that Cambridge folk scene. So I grew up basically him playing guitar a little bit, but more his record collection. These people he had seen play uh, in the Boston Commons or in Cambridge, uh, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, um, you know, coming up in, in, in that time period in the early 60s. And so that was hugely formative. And then, yeah, this wild childhood of getting to go down to Music Row in Nashville, hang out in the studios, like the first Warner Brothers building in Nashville, because it was pretty small scale back then in the 80s and 90s. Like they were in this old brick building that was the former House of Unwed Mothers, that's like what it was Jeez. called. <laughs> and that was like where the Warner Brothers studio or um, offices were. So I have like great memories of hanging out in this weird kind of rundown brick building in old Nashville, which is unrecognizable to, to what we got going on today for better and worse. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those combinations of things, my dad's record collection, the stories he'd tell me of like hanging in uh, Cambridge because he's from Braintree, Dorche born in Dorchester, raised in Braintree. For those of you who know your Boston geography, end of the don't red you line. you mean Dorchester? I don't mean that, but he would. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean Dorchester. That's how I would say it. Um, but like, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. And then his just, he's a very, you don't find these folks in the record business much anymore. But he's like kind of one of those la like old, just like record store loving, being in a band, no college degree cowboys who, who ran Nashville for a long time. And he was sort of in the second or third wave of Nashville producers and A&R guys and stuff like that, if you go through the city's history. But yeah, I mean, and he also like he's the one who, I don't know, at least according to her Wikipedia page, like signed Faith Hill on like a napkin outside the Bluebird Cafe or something back home. Oh, wow. So he was sort of responsible for some of the pop country stuff that I'm not fond of, too, right. um, oh, along with a, a coterie of like, you know, half a dozen other people and stuff like that. Other other label heads and things like that. It's interesting to hear like how involved he was in sort of and I have a question about like authenticity a little later mm -hmm. on, but like how your dad was like so involved in this like what now like we're all talking about is like very strange country music discourse and you you said I as an Italian American Vietnamese kid grew up with a very interesting existence in country music so what was that like for you as a kid to have a white dad working in country music how do you reflect on it now what did that do to your relationship with the genre and to your dad it's, it certainly has changed as I've become more educated in American history and sort of how people like myself uh, who look like myself, a little darker, definitely didn't fit in with like my Nashville friends growing up. It's evolved because of like my studies and my experience in the world. As a kid, uh, you know, I was just trying to keep my head down because this was early 90s, Nashville, um, got beat up on the playground a couple times, uh, incessantly kind of like low key racist stuff from my friends, let alone like you know, enemies or whatever, went to a white flight private school that was named after a Confederate general whose plantation house we visited every year. And they they weren't up on calling them slave quarters yet. They called them servant houses on the plantation, like on the tours. Oh. So this is the kind of education I got. Some really wonderful teachers um, 
but yeah, it's like coming out of the shadow of that um, post-segregation South. It was just 20 years removed from that when I was growing up, 20, 30 years removed. So I had to keep my head down and just try to, I wanted to be as white as possible. So I really didn't look into my mom's side of the family at all. I mean, also it's super complicated because she left Vietnam when she was young and didn't see her family for like over a decade because of the war. So we weren't really attached to, to much family, but it was easier to drive down to Florida to see my like New England transplanted grandparents um, than, than it was to go to France, which we did like every other year because that's like where all my Vietnamese family went. But really it was kind of isolated. And that's something that I don't think was the best for me growing up looking back. I wish I had more family around, but I had a lot of, um, which is a real Southern thing, a lot of aunties, a lot of, a lot of nice conservative white ladies in the neighborhood who helped raise me, which, which to this day informs my politics. I'm much more um, empathetic towards people that we demonize regularly, at least in like the kind of academic circles, activist circles I run in, because those are the people who raised me, like gave me food off their table and stuff. So it's harder to just like puff out my chest and be like these idiots, you know what I mean? But as far as like uh, how I look at it now, there's one story I really remember vividly. And my dad used to get all these demos, right? Um, People trying to get signed to Warners. And there was this one really incessant, I think he was like a Japanese dentist. I wish I remembered his name, who would send demos of these country songs with a really thick Japanese accent. And we would just laugh at him in the car because we thought it was so funny. You know, he couldn't get his R's, his tongue around those R's and stuff like that, which is hard for a lot of Asian people. And now I look back and it's like, That is probably the most authentic country musician I heard growing up, because this is someone who, despite being born a world away from Nashville, from where I'm from, this quote unquote authentic center of country music, um, despite not looking like Keith Urban, who can get away with his ridiculous accent, um, you know, (laughs) he gave it his all. He, He like knew he couldn't speak perfect English, knew he couldn't sing the way that Travis Tritt or Randy Travis sang or whatever. But he was sending in these demos year after year just to be laughed at, but he still kept going. And that became really inspiring to me, you know, and that's helped me look back and really expand my horizon on folk music to a more, I guess, global level and made me Mm -hmm. go back and look at like, oh, Japanese people were actually singing country music back in the 40s and 50s. And there's incredible old movies that you can find online or, you know, um, Iwan Falls is like my favorite folk singer. He's from Indonesia. Um, he has a song called Ma'af Chintaku, which is like the most beautiful folk ballad. He's like the, I think the Indonesian Bob Dylan is what they call him or something like that. Mm. And, um, you know, all these like, uh, or getting into like, you know, the Afrobeat stuff, which is like this beautiful mix of like James Brown, American black music with West African kind of rhythms and horn sections and stuff like that. You just realize that like out of the, pretty pretty horrible uh, colonial history of the 19th and 20th century, people were making and localizing these really cool Western and American musics in their own way. And that has made me go back and reconsider that moment of sitting in the carpool line, laughing my head off at this dude who looked a lot more like me than he looks like my dad, this Japanese dentist. And the, the courage mm-hmm. and the bravery to just cut these demos, to put your money into this, to like learn these songs. Like, how much must you love country music if you can't even speak English, like, quote unquote, 100% correct, but you still have the gall to ship out these cassette tapes all over the world, you know? So that's, that's something I think about a lot. I think about that dude 
um, who had a face much more like mine than my father's, who, um, yeah, was was branded by the arbiter, like people like my dad as inauthentic, would never get signed to a label. And uh, now I'm like, wow, that's like as bad as as country as it gets. You know, um, you were talking about how when you were a kid, you're just trying to keep your head down. And that's something how you've talked about before, um, you know, since you're thinking that you, you don't fit in with anyone, you want to seem as white as possible. And like thinking about that memory of you, um, who you're darker than your father, your white father, you're sitting in this car, like you're seeing him laughing and you're like, well, I'm going to laugh along too, because this is like the way it is. You, I want to hear more about your experience with like keeping your head down because I've also heard you talk about like that's how um, uh, immigrants in the U.S. would act, you know, just try to keep your head down. How do you see like you're keeping your head down or like you're hiding as like generational trauma and how will you or how do you try to heal that hurt? Yeah, I mean, I try to avoid a lot of those big in vogue buzzwords like generational trauma right now because I think it gets too unwieldy to just sort of plop that down without years and years of study behind it, to be honest with you. I think it's kind of become a shorthand that we don't explore deeply enough. We just kind of leave it there. So for me, what we would call generational trauma, it's like my mom had a tough go of things. She was born into an unlucky time for her in particular, had to watch family members die during the war and had to escape it. The rest of our family had to leave our home country in Vietnam. That's just really unfortunate. Um, And does that produce some really heavy things that are too hard for anyone to pick up? Absolutely. And so for me as like this kid in Nashville, was that kind of this uh, maybe inherited generational trauma? Yeah, we could say that. But I think it was just more of, I grew up in a time where, you know, we... (laughs) They're making Marvel movies about Asian people now, you know, it's it's wild, you know, and like the amount of, I think, uh, benefit I've gotten. And I've been the same musician my whole life and the amount of like benefit I got in the last couple of years because of this project, again, because of like my ethnicity is like more in vogue now. I find kind of interesting. I'm I'm glad I'm glad to share my music and stuff, but we don't really That's what I mean by like when we just leave it with like, um, you know, diversity and inclusion, generational trauma, all these like really hard won academic terms, which people before my generation of scholars like wrote books and books and books on. And then they become like teen vogue, you know, lists and stuff. I try not to go there as much as just I can explore my own personal situation and then I can maybe reflect and analyze it through the, the lenses of a larger American history that I've studied. And not to get like too convoluted, I just think that there were challenges that I grew up with because of my race, just because it was uh, sometimes like it sucked. I remember being at summer school and these two kids uh, in high school, these two kids just incessantly made fun of me, Um, you know, and they weren't what they were black kids, like real from like a really crappy part of town. So this was not just like a, you know, white privilege, like white supremacist thing. It was just that like, you didn't see people like me growing up in Nashville a lot. I mean, I don't think we got sushi till after I was born. It was fucking wild to think about. And certainly there was no like, um, just dedicated pho or bubble tea restaurant, the way that people go nuts for that stuff now. And so I was just different. And I remember a lot of moments of 
like being in the Walmart, <laughs> I'm bougie, so I'd say like foyer, but like the, the entry area of Walmart by my house off Charlotte Pike. Um, I was five years old and I walked in with my mom and this little five-year-old blonde kid and his dad was right there, just started slanting his eyes at me and just like saying all this like obnoxious, like ching chong, fake Chinese shit. And that, I remember some like high schoolers like rolling down their windows and just at a stoplight harassing my mother, like in stuff that like you would, that you would get arrested for now, um, which I guess is good. Mm. Um, but just like those kind of things. And then some of those playground fights, just like little jokes that would always come up, not having any representation whatsoever, whether it was like in music or movies or TV, um, any stereotypes that you did see were like really, really bad or just we were invisible. So it was just like kind of growing up in that mess. And it's a trauma that is produced, um, I guess, largely because of these discourses of imperialism and war that affected my family and the people who immigrated from Asia. But mostly it was just like, it's hard to be a kid anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. and I was a pretty rich kid too, because my dad had that Warner's job till I was in high school. So we had a good decade of money, like not as much anymore, but um, we had a good run for a dude who didn't graduate college and my father. So I was going to private school, but you know, it, it sucked in that way, but I certainly wasn't any worse off than some of the poor, you know, redneck kids that I also grew up with, you know, mm. even in my neighborhood and stuff like that. Um, so it's so complicated and I, I just have gotten away from trying to just like uh, land on those ideas of like trauma or just trying to explore it more deeply, I guess, and and try to complicate Mm. it and and untangle it a bit more, if that makes sense. I wanted to talk about uh, Nickelback yeah. Before we get into uh, your Vietnamese family. Why do, we, why do we need to talk about Nickelback? Well, I heard you in the podcast In the Moment um, talk okay. about how you like came of age musically and like the terrible aftermath of grunge. Yeah. Which, um, for those who are unaware, uh, thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, radio and media became more of a commodity than a community resource. So instead of like alternative seeming women, alternative seeming music, any minorities, all of those people disappeared from the radio, disappeared from TV, the few that were actually there. um, And we got Nickelback, Rap Rock. So Julian, how do you reflect back on that time as a music fan? Because I'm a few years older than you, but definitely. Of that era. Uh, of that era, uh, you know, reflect on that time as a music fan where maybe you were like way more into Limp Biscuit than you would like to admit. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, the two, I guess I loved a lot of bands that started with the letter R. I realized my CD collection was heavy because I was like a super high fidelity watching record nerd and a lot of Radiohead, a lot of Red Hot Chili Peppers, a lot of Rage Against the Machine. And I'm still fine musically uh, with all three of those bands. There's still a lot of very interesting things, a lot of great musicianship. Um, culturally, uh, the anger of rage, while I still agree with the politics, has like kind of like soured on me. Uh, Chili Peppers, as you grow up and you become less of a like bro, uh, 
douchey bro, which I was certainly raised to be. Still working on that. Um, chili peppers get a little hard to stomach sometimes, but f- still love uh, Frusciante and Flea. Um, the Radiohead's pretty unimpeachable, especially what Johnny Greenwood's been doing with film scores recently. So, so those tenets, um, foundations, I'm still very proud of. I owned one Limp Biscuit CD. Um, I remember singing along with the radio. I did it all for the Nookie before I even that was relevant to me. Um, <laughs> and Corn, uh, I think I had a CD. I still love their song "Freak on a Leash." Um, mm-hmm. a, a lot musically. Um, I'm following this very well, actually. <laughs> uh, Nickelback <laughs> was just always too much. Nickelback and Puddle of Mud. I knew at the time this. So sucks. You draw the line. This yeah. is who. I don't have empathy for <laughs> in all my white Southern masculine, toxic masculine upbringing. Even as like a 16 year old, I was like, this is too much. This is too much. Like I could deal with Rivers Cuomo uh, fetishization of Asian women much easier than I can whatever Nickelback was doing. Uh, so it's like, you know, all, all of my problematic faves they were never on the fave list. And I, I was just talking to uh, the producer I work with on No No Voice, Seth, who I went to Berkeley with. Shout out to Boston. And he's like 10 years older than me. So I was like, you got Eddie and Kurt when they were like young, like, you know, kind of fooling themselves, but brilliant, like songwriters and like whatever they were doing. You got some kind of like connection. You got like the Bikini Kill stuff. You got like R.E.M. even when they were still really good. And then I got just like the this horrible aftermath of this dude's suicide that left this vacuum to be filled with this kind of like refrigerator buzz, hyper frat boy masculinity. And that like shaped me so much in ways that I've spent 20 years undoing, like literally taking like feminist Mm -hmm. studies and queer theory courses just because of Nickelback. Right. I could have avoided (laughs) all all of that Judith Butler reading uh, if, if Nickelback didn't exist. If I had been born now, I would have been such maybe like a more obnoxious person. Uh, especially with my politics, but like I would have been a much more balanced person and not have to like go back and like yeah. uh, atone for for my sins. Puddle of mud, Nickelback, P.O.D., Limp Biscuit, Corn, basically any rap rock but Rage Against the Machine. I can kind of toss at this point. Mm-hmm. But I really think it was the nadir of popular music because we hadn't been liberated for all its problems by Spotify and the choice to sort of make your own playlist, um, which is also ridiculous now because I feel like they're just like just morning breakfast, lesbian jazz injected into my veins, playlist Spotify, Asian-American futurist Afrofusion ensemble dinner playlist injected into my veins. You know, it's like (laughs) (laughs) it's getting a little crazy. Um, And I do miss the radio sometimes, but I would have been a lot better served. I don't know how you feel about that, too, kind of being of the same generation. Yeah. And also working in the radio industry and sort of seeing it get more and more saturated with just playing music to get as many people listening as possible, as opposed to like playing music because you like it 
Right. As like, it used to be this like Promethean task that DJs were set out with, right? Let me share this with the people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's still people like a great station up here in Seattle that I've worked with, like KXP, who still genuinely love discovering stuff and sharing it. And there's still those places, Mm -hmm. right? More nonprofit kind of vibes. But that used to be commercial radio to a certain extent. It's like, I'm stoked on this. A DJ could be so stoked on something that like, you know, it becomes a thing. Like John Peel over in the UK, right? With the white stripes or whatever. But yeah. like when I hit high school, like you said, because of that telecommunications act, right? That's ex- I hit high school in 1999. It's just like, man, the top nine. It was like Woodstock 99. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember like the top nine at nine, 1029, the buzz. That was like my, like uh, every night I would listen to that. Cause I didn't have, I didn't have anything yet. I didn't even have MP3s at that point. It's that weird moments. You know, yep. and I'm really pow- strange. And I don't have a license yet. I can't drive the Tower Records and buy all the records and stuff like that. I was also poor, so I couldn't buy records. But like, yeah, man, what a moment. Also, you had like dial up at that point. There was no Napster. It was dial up. There wasn't you. YouTube didn't come till 2005. So I it was used, like, I remember downloading. It was the radio. I downloaded today by the Smashing Pumpkins the music video overnight. Oh yeah, <laughs> like it was like a like a set tw- it to download, go to sleep. Yeah, it was like a six megabyte video. Like I don't even know what pixel radio would be, but it was like God. wouldn't even look good on your iPhone. Okay, yeah. All right, um, I do want to talk about No No Boy because it's such a it's such a, an amazing project, and um, there's again like so much to cover, and I also feel like I could talk to you about you know the years like 1996 and 2012 forever. But mm-hmm. um, I do want to talk about No No Boy. So um, you have come into your identity by like leaning into the history of Asian Americans and the stories from your mother's family. And again, there's a lot to talk about. So she was raised in South Vietnam before the country was unified in 1975, which is also the name of No No Boy's latest album. Um, in a pretty well-off family, uh, but the country was like still at war while she was growing up, so there was like no escaping bombs going off while she was walking home from school. Actual real trauma. Yeah. Uh, can yeah. you talk about like what her normalcy looked like in South Vietnam, what you knew of her history growing up, what it was like to learn that history, and how it changed your relationship with her? Sure. I mean, as far as I recall from stories like that she told and this has been true for kind of other uh immigrant kids i've had very similar conversations with from other southeast asian families affected by the war she's not nearly as obsessed with the real like you said real trauma she went through um as the second generation is who inherits that quote-unquote trauma her daily life what she remembers the story she tells catholic school french catholic school um family going out to her grandfather's home in Vinlong in the countryside, um, the plants, the fauna, getting a boule de glace or ice cream in Saigon at certain cafes and stuff like that. Uh, she remembers the Hotel Continental right next to the Opera House downtown next to where she lived, um, which are still there, these beautiful French imperial buildings, hashtag complicated. And um, yeah, remembers the food remembers her family, remembers her mother, remembers her father, who she never got to see again um, after she left. So it's, it's, it's a bittersweet quotidian that she recalls. I feel that's, that's been true for a lot of immigrants and refugees that I've either know personally or have interviewed. 
it's not this obsession the way that I have obsessed in my academic work over the war and death and napalm and bombs and grenades going off, which you would see in downtown Saigon, you know, Viet Cong uh, attacks on civilians and soldiers. Um, that's not what she chooses to remember. And she was also a, a teenage girl at the time. And in her own words, I remember she, she, she was telling me about how when she came to Pennsylvania for college, and that's how she got out. Like her, her grandfather was assassinated. He was like a kind of a big deal politician in South Vietnam. And he was assassinated. The whole family was there in South Vietnam in their house in Vinh Long by a grenade during the Tet Offensive mm-hmm. in 68. You know, so she ends up wisely getting out on a student visa since there were some connects, since they were a pretty well-off family. Ends up in Pennsylvania. She remembers the local Lions Club in Elizabethtown asked her to talk about the war, right? Bleeding heart liberals like you and myself, I'm sure. Um, All the sympathy for these people that they don't fucking know, Um, which is great. It's great to have sympathy and empathy for people you don't know. But she said, you know, I didn't really have anything to say. I was a 18 year old. I was more concerned about my nail polish than anything else. And I try to get stories like that across, you know, not focus on the big numbers of these historical moments. Focus on, like, family. Focus on um, a young woman interested in nail polish more than war. Because I think that's most of us when you actually have to live through this trauma. Um, There's some days where you Mm -hmm. might just have to survive. And maybe my mom had a few of those. But by and large, it was a uh, softer backdrop of a very loud war that she had to walk through every day. And so you kind of normalize it, you know. You just raise your noise floor a little bit and kind of do your daily thing. People who are living through those situations today, my friends who are coming from Central American countries or Mexico where they're being extorted or, um, you know, put in positions of gang violence where they have to flee to the United States, their kids are playing superheroes in the refugee camps. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's us who, I think rightfully so, are spending a lot of in- intellectual time mulling over this trauma and the injustice of it all. But most people are just trying to get through and so I think that's where my songwriting has led, because I studied those big numbers, um, less the Vietnam War specifically, because that's actually like very hard to dig in and read book at like book after book after book. Um, so more Chinese American, Japanese American immigration stories is like my expertise um, as far as an academic goes. But even after reading all those like hundreds and hundreds of books and articles, I'm interested in what music people played. I'm interested in like how people danced. I'm interested in the relatability and the humanness of these stories because I guess I don't want to be a um, protest sign holding liberal or not only a protest sign holding liberal. I want to be able to have conversations and just share what I see as a very uh, unpoliticized history. Before No No Boy, uh, you were talking about how you would write historical songs steeped in like white Americana and black Americana, but never Asian Americana Mm -hmm. experience until you went to grad school in Wyoming and visited all these sites of Asian American history. And you said, I saw myself for the first time seeing myself in black and white gives you some kind of foundation. And now like during your concerts and on your social media, you will share archival images or old family photos because it's like a placemaking project for you. And you make albums as No No Boy uh, that you would have liked to have listened to. So I wanna know more about that feeling you experienced when you first saw those black and whites and how you see those 
images impacting others during your shows? Ooh, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a placemaking project. Um, and I wish I had known more about the history of people who look like me in the South, because it was very much, I mean, the, the black-white binary is so heavy where I'm from. It's such a, has produced the greatest food and art in our country, arguably in the world in the 20th century, uh, and has also still devastates to this day. Like, it was very regular to hear about, like, some, you know, black kids, you know, the cop stuff, but also just, like, random violence in Nashville growing up uh, from, like, white kids and, like, not far removed from, like, where the Klan started and, and, and vice versa. Like, I remember hearing about, like, white kids being idiots and, and waving a Confederate flag in front of a group of black kids growing up and them chasing them down and killing them. You know, just that kind of stuff, like, you can't get over that or we haven't gotten over that. You can, I think, but we haven't. And so that black-white binary is inescapable. So part of that keeping my head down I was talking about was trying to, trying to fit in there, you know? Like, because I didn't... There were Asian kids in my high school, but I didn't really hang with them because I think there was, like, a lot of self-hatred going on. So I'd hang out, like, mm. my buddy Brandon, who I played peewee basketball with, and on, on, like, like my black friends who all sat together uh, in the cafeteria. And then I'd hang out with, like, my white friends, who I had much more culturally in common with because um, I was part white. Um, but I didn't look like anyone. I was so obviously different. And that really sucked. Really, really sucked. And it was um, piles of therapy, therapy bills that can attest to that. I now go back, whether it's, like, this photo of this jazz band in the state that I lived in that was all Japanese-American, Georgia Gawa Orchestra formed in the internment camp in Hart Mountain in Wyoming in the, during the war. Looking at that photo, it's like, oh man, I get this. And not necessarily because they're Asian, more that because they're, they're Asians who are musicians, I guess. Because like the, the Asian thing is like, that's fine. But I'd never feel particularly Asian even now. Like that's more of a West Coast invention, the Asian American. That's like a West Coast, East Asian, Japanese and Chinese Americans who are college educated. That's not the background I come from. I come from like, you know, at least on my dad's side, like first person to get a college degree, let, let alone a doctorate. Um, uh, immigrant family on my mom's side, growing up in the middle of the country. Very unrelatable to these ethnic enclaves in Seattle, Portland, where I am now, Los Angeles, San Francisco. So I don't really identify as Asian American at all. I also don't have like this, the same politics. It's a very political group because like Asian Americans came out of this uh, moment in the um, 70s, roughly, where all these college kids, San Francisco State University, Bay Area, they kind of formed it in their own image and they left out a lot of us like Vietnamese, Cambodian, Indians, Near East kind of folks. Um, so I think it was the combination, not only of these black and white photos of Asians, but doing something that I could relate to. So musicians, dancers, little kids, because we're all little kids, people eating, you know, stuff like that. You don't realize how much that means to you until you go back to the hours and hours and books and books that you've gone through in history classes growing up and realize, why didn't you tell me this? Like, I went to a jazz college, didn't learn about one Asian American jazz musician, let alone this incredible story of a band that formed, 16-piece big band that formed behind barbed wire in the middle of Wyoming in a concentration camp. It's like, why was that not in my jazz history? When we're learning Seriously. about Benny Goodman, Harry James, all those awesome dudes who are doing the World War II swing stuff, you know? Why did I not learn about the Georgia Orchestra? Why am I the one, like, right now, literally having to finish my dissertation to tell people about this? 
it's stupid because one, it's an amazing musical story um, that belongs in the annals of, of jazz history, but it was just kind of denied in part because of that black black white binary. No No Boy gets its name from Japanese Americans who were forced to live in internment camps during World War II uh, after Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1942. Um, And then after they were in these camps, they were asked to serve in combat and swear allegiance to the United States. And those who answered no to those two demands were on the government's loyalty questionnaire became No No Boys. Am I getting this right? Yes. That's right. Oh, my God. I okay. feel like you've learned so much. <laughs> I know. I really have. As a teacher, I'm like so stoked. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Those who refused were sent to concentration camps, which was also a novel. Is it historical fiction by John Okada? Yeah. John Okada. Um, it's really the reason Okada. I named the, the, the Project Nono Boys because like as a teacher, I'm so stoked when someone reads a book especially like a great, this is like the great first Asian American novel um, has been said by some. And it's a, really one of the, the few books that gets at a lot of what I felt, this torn intuitiveness, this cut in halfness um, mm. of, of, of having, um, you know, multiple allegiances, which can't be reconciled necessarily. Julian, say it, say it slowly, torn intuitiveness. Torn into edness. Yeah. Yes. I got an email once. It's like, I heard you on the radio and you said this amazing torn into it, like intuitiveness. Like that's what they thought. And I was like, no, it's not. I didn't say that. But yeah, this, 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 this bifurcation of self, right? Which we all mm-hmm. have to a certain extent, you know, uh, unless we're like the waspiest, like Ivy League crew rowing bro. Like we all have this like place where we don't fit in. So John Okada writes this novel reflecting on a no-no boy, this person um, who was sent to basically what became a maximum security prison for all these quote unquote disloyal people, thousands and thousands of them out of the 120,000. Most were quote unquote loyal. I just wanted to um, name it after one, a good book, because like to this day, I mean, you probably Googled me for this. Like, that's the first thing that comes up, which I hope it always stays that way. And I've talked to dozens of people who have read the book and bought the book because of the project. Like, that's the number one goal. as like a teacher who makes music. But then also the no-no boys who are men and women um, sent to Thule Lake, this like extra security concentration camp um, for disloyals. It's a hidden history within a hidden history. You know, it's like, it's something that even the Japanese American population, like they punished these people after the war. Like the people who didn't go along with the government. Like they were, they were stigmatized until very recently. And now they're kind of being rebranded by Gen Z activists as like these resistors and stuff like that, which is also not necessarily the truth. Um, but it's a more honest look at like the diversity of opinions, thoughts, political allegiances, complications within this sort of like flattened uh, 120,000 Japanese American people interned during the war. There's many different people from different parts of the uh, country, farmers, city kids, and then people who are more loyal to Japan. Uh, People who, because they weren't allowed to be citizens necessarily, or their parents were like not allowed to uh, become citizens. And um, so, yeah, it's a short answer is no, no boy. Great book you should read. And it's a hidden history within a hidden history. 
There's also, uh, I heard you talk about the Spiders. They also have a song called No No Boy, which yeah. is apparently like one of your favorite songs of all time. Um, so the Spiders were a Japanese rock band who were leaders in the group sound genre. Um, they were really influenced by Western rock music. And you've spoken passionately about musicians who have learned and perfected and like improved upon, evolved the music of the oppressor. So I wonder like how much like these these groups like the Spiders, like the George Igawa Orchestra, the Vietnamese bands that you've talked about, um, your mother's friend Robert, who, um, sorry, I just said it like a Spanish. That's okay. <laughs> Robert. It's okay. Um, uh, his band in Vietnam would play for the American GIs. They would like learn Jimi Hendrix music, and then, um, but those types of musicians have musically influenced No No Boy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's kind of what we talked about with that Japanese dentist. After learning about, because um, I used to think of those people as inauthentic, like that Japanese dentist, right? But then I went back and actually studied the history, listened to these bands. And, and some of that spider stuff you'll find online is super goofy. It's like, you know, Japanese Mick Jagger in the most goofy way, like minstrelsy, like like Japanese minstrelsy of British people doing minstrelsy of like black musicians, right? So it's super layered. But the thing about wow. the spiders and the thing about the stones <laughs> too, right? They're, they love that music, genuinely. Like, they have a genuine love for that music. Do they understand, like, all the um, historical specificity of where uh, black American music comes from necessarily? No, especially when it gets all the way to the spiders transmitted through the Beatles and the Stones and stuff like that. But do they have a really fun time? And are they doing anything too terribly, like, racist or obnoxious? No. Um, and they end up making really cool music once they sort of get out of that like Japanese Mick Jagger shadow in a song like No No Boys, this beautiful 60s, early 70s kind of ballad vibe, gorgeous. And then when you add on that they're singing in another language, which Japanese not so much, but something like Vietnamese, which is a tonal language, adds on a whole nother layer of musicality and harmony mm. and all these in-between notes, which we don't get in Western music. You're getting something musicologically, sorry to nerd out, that's like... Do it. S gets me super stoked, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's like, oh my God, like what the CBC band, my favorite Vietnamese rock band, or all these like incredible Cambodian rock bands um, that play up till the genocide in Cambodia, um, or like Fela Kuti is probably the best example, or Bob Marley, these people who take the music of the oppressor, right, influenced by... Uh, American music, British music, people who colonized and imperialized them, who bring records uh, along with the occupation, whether that's in Japan after the war or in my mom's country. And then they, they, they learn them. They might not be very good, but some of them get very good, like some shit hot guitar players and some incredible rhythms. And you get this beautiful, you know, you make something beautiful out of imperialism. Much like, mm -hmm. I always I say, much like the banh mi sandwich. You know, imperialism is this double-edged sword, 99% horrible, war, genocide, appropriation, blah, 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 sucks. But then you also get banh mi sandwiches and rock and roll music that pushes the form <laughs> forward. And maybe because I'm a selfish musician who also loves to eat, like, not a fair trade. Not a fair trade at all. No. But you get some pretty sick stuff that comes out of it. So... 
from what I gather, No No Boy does residencies around the country when there's no global pandemic. And it kind of sounds like this musical project, while you are not in academia anymore, is still pretty academic. Like you're playing educational concerts uh, in like lecture halls and you're not playing a bar gig. Uh, People are listening to your words with great intention. So with that in mind, like how has No No Boy elevated your musical experience more than previous ventures? The intellectual side of it has really benefited the musical side, not only like lyrically and and trying to use this kind of folk folk song thing, history through song, which has been happening since like Homer uh, and before. But like going to the actual sites that I study, I'll take my field recorder out of this like, you know, song collecting tradition and, and record the sound of the barbed wire of one of these old Japanese internment camps or outside the detention centers down in Texas today. Um, record the voices of these people who live the history, whether it's my family or elsewhere, and actually mix that into the compositions, right? Like, so in 1975, every single rhythm track, all the percussion is made out of these historical sounds relevant to what I study. Um, I don't necessarily think it sounds better than if I had hired a band, but like that's where the intellectual thing becomes really interesting for me. You know, it's like I can put on the headphones and sing the song and I'm literally listening to the sounds of this museum where I learned this research or this concentration camp ruin um, or a refugee camp site where like my Vietnamese people might have gone through. Um, so that's made it really interesting. I'm also like right now, like between finishing up my dissertation, uh, I'm working on a film score um, about a Vietnamese American story. I think that's all I can probably say about that. But like um, mixing in, like theorizing what this Vietnamese refugee uh, has gone through and then trying to make music that tells that story while bringing in all my family history, my experience as a Vietnamese American, and all the history I've studied, it's really cool. You get like new sounds and stuff like that. And so that's been really beneficial. Um, the next album that I'm working on, the next No No Boy, like song album, is really focused on, we talked about how it was when I went to Wyoming that I kind of became Asian American, that I finally saw people who looked like me, whether it was mm-hmm. like, and, and found this empathy, whether it was like the massacre at Rock Springs in 1885, where all these Chinese miners were, were killed by a white mob or the Heart Mountain internment camp. I went back to the South and I've been studying Asians who fought in the Civil War on both sides. Um, I've been studying the Manila men who in the early 19th century had a whole village uh, outside New Orleans from uh, Filipinos. And studying the, the coolies who came up from Cuba in, in, in thousands to work the sugarcane plantations after the end of slavery, kind of as like this racial wedge between white people and black folks. Been studying the internment camps, the two that are in Arkansas, and trying to tell stories. You know, you mentioned that I've said in the past that like trying to write records that my 12 year old self would have like uh, benefited from. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like you aren't actually alone and you actually have never been alone. There are people who have been here long before you who look just like you, relatively speaking. So like writing those stories into song, writing about Asians in the South is really important to me. I mean, this summer I'm planning on taking a road trip. My boy Diego, who I mentioned, who's a professor at Tufts now, important little guy he is, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, uh, he just discovered, and he's gonna be putting this out in his book um, next year, that there were Asians who came to the coast of Oregon in 1602. 
That's insane. Like that completely flips upside down this kind of like east to west manifest destiny migration narrative. It makes us think about Spanish colonialism in the Pacific and people reaching not only Mexico, which we knew about and stuff like that, but as far north as Oregon, like a a ship uh, of of, uh, a Spanish expedition set out from Acapulco. Diego went through Spanish archives and, and saw that there was like two Indians, one Japanese, three Filipinos, not to mention a slew of black folks. So 1602 is where these histories start for these diff- different communities in Oregon. And that is not taught in any Oregon state history book or any American mm-hmm. history book because Diego just found it. Genius that he is. Wow. And so like writing those kinds of songs or, or, or trying to get those stories out through like popular publications because Diego's brilliant, but he's writing for an academic audience, right? Mm-hmm. So this is where the music has become really interesting. How do I tell a story like that? The 1602 expedition to, to Cape Sebastian in Southern Oregon, which has these like, all these people of color as part of the crew. I, that's just totally, for me anyways, makes me feel a lot more American. To know that before America was even a fucking idea. There's people who set foot, who kind of had slanty eyes like me, who looked, uh, who, 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 who came to this state where I now live. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of this endless well of lyrical inspiration. And then, you know, getting a lot of new sounds, whether that's from field recordings or studying kind of Asian music more carefully. It's, um, it's been super beneficial. So just wow. for any aspiring folk singers, you know, just get a PhD and yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds easy. Uh, there's just like so much work to do, Julian. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to hearing your next project. Before I let you go, will you do the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Quick. Let's okay. do it. Favorite Nickelback songs. Kind of. <laughs> we already went over that. Oh, that's right. Um, okay. This is the real lightning round. Here we go. Julian, yeah. what was the first song you learned on the guitar? Don't Speak by No Doubt or some like oh, wow. version of it. No, no, no. When I Come Around by Green Day. Philip Brooks's room, he played drums, I played guitar, got the tabs off the dial-up internet. Nice. Uh, what is your karaoke song? Uh, that, that, um, uh, that one that Heath Ledger sings in um, You're Just Too Good to Be True in uh, 10 Things oh. I Hate About You. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's nice. Kills. Um. It kills with drunk 40-year-old white Nashville women at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't sung it in a while, but I have good memories of it. What is your coffee order? Like a child, like a, a Leo cafe, like tons of milk, <laughs> decaf. Coffee with your milk. Yeah, um, yeah. That's like kind of a Rhode Island thing too, so. <laughs> Who is your first celebrity crush? Cameron Diaz in The Mask. Hmm. Yeah. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? The, oh, I forget his name. Singer from Super Furry Animals. Oh. Do you I know that know band? That yes, I do. Hello, sunshine. Had that o- song on the OC. Um, Let's look it up. Super furry animals are awesome. They're like the, the, I think Welsh, like flaming lips is how I think about them. And I met, I think his name is Gruff or Griff. It's like a Welsh name. And he was so nice. I was backstage at Glastonbury. Griff Reese. Yeah, I was backstage at Glastonbury Festival, like a long, long time ago when I was like in a, a, like a proper band. And um, I was so nervous because I was like a kid, right? These memories of just like mud. And I didn't drink or do drugs back then, so it sucked. Sucks so bad, like because you really got to be stoned or drunk to enjoy. It's basically a refugee camp, 
Like it's it's mm. like worse conditions. It's just like shit and mud, you mm. know, and a hundred thousand people, like drunk British people. And so if you're not also rolling with them, it's tough. And we were like trying to play all these gigs. So we were like, I remember like walking across this muddy field and Beirut is playing, like which was like my favorite band at the time. And I can't mm-hmm. listen. And one of our bandmates like gets their welly, their boots stuck in the mud, like which is like thigh deep. And we're like, keep going. We can't go yeah. back for the boot. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But I remember <laughs> being backstage um, and I was like, so I'm a very anxious person, like incredibly like horrible social anxiety, like diagnosable just terrible and i didn't really know that when i was a young kid because i'd hold this like young man energy so i like kind of like just be toxic to compensate for it um sure and uh you're familiar <laughs> you've met these people oh yeah <laughs> um it's not exclusive to men but that is where it manifested for me sure um mm. but like what's his name gruff did gruff you gruff reese gruff reese he was so sweet backstage like we're just in the artist area. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, wow, you're so kind. You're not trying to like um, do this thing where insecure young bands like myself are like trying to get an opening slot or something for someone else or try to kiss ass. And he was just mm-hmm. like super chill. And then the Super Fur Animals performance was one of the best live performances, which is really hard to do oh. at those big festivals because the sound always sucks. And it was awesome. He was super cool. All right, a couple more here. Flying or invisibility? Invisibility. Probably goes back to the, the Asian-American thing. The generational trauma. <laughs> yes, it's a generational trauma. Like, that, that would be my origin story. Yeah. yeah. Yellow okay, man. Okay, here's, here's the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? The things that come to mind, I climbed up this place called Castleton Tower in the Utah desert. It's like this beautiful mm. 400 foot like sheer like desert tower. That mm. was like the process of getting up there was beautiful. Um, mm. There was too windy on top for it to be like really beautiful. And then rappelling down was like, I thought we were gonna die. So that wasn't great. Mm. As far as spaces, I'd say Halong Bay out, outside Hanoi in North Vietnam on the coast, which I mentioned I think in Tell Hanoi I Love Her off the album, mm-hmm. or Glacier National Park. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to the project. And I'm super stoked that you learned so much about like Asian American history. That's, that's yeah. what makes me happy. Totally. I was, I was happy to. You're a very good teacher. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. You can find all the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. You can also search on the SiriusXM app for Basic Folk or check out our website, basicfolk.com. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. You are certainly one of a million literally one of millions. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.